Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, hello, hello. Boris Johnson, is he toast? There was no reason to use that. It was just, I saw it was lying in the kind of video sections by accident. So I just thought we'd use it for the hell of it. For over 40% of Tory MPs voted no confidence in the Prime Minister last week. Now, the problem is we've done various derivative titles along the lines of is Boris Johnson toast? Oh my word, is Boris Johnson finished? Surely Boris Johnson can't survive now. He's still Prime Minister. So <laughs> so presumably we'll be doing many other shows with this title or along these same lines as well. He's still there. He might be the walking dead. We just don't know how much emphasis to put on walking or, or dead right now. So there are two by-elections coming up. There's also the investigations by the Standards Committee in Parliament about whether or not he misled Parliament. Some would say, well, if he misled Parliament, he's got to go then. Well, I mean, there's lots of things Boris Johnson, in a, in a different sort of world in which maybe uh, those rules applied to him, he would have gone long, long ago. And that hasn't obviously happened. Now, we'll just take a little show today. We've got the brilliant Aaron Bastani from Navarra, who will join us shortly. First off, though... Um, Jacob Reese Mogg, uh, uh, Channel 4 News did a little montage, which I'm going to show you a little bit of. This was the fact that Jacob Reese Mogg has come out, obviously, punching, defending Boris Johnson, and didn't have the same approach to Theresa May. Let's have a little look. If this defeat is worse than Theresa May's, you still think that's fine? One is enough. It's a very bad result for the Prime Minister. Um, a majority of backbenchers voted against her. The Parliamentary Party does have confidence. Yeah. Does. A significant number of colleagues did cast a vote against me, and I've listened to what they said. We now need to get on with the job of delivering Brexit for the British people. I think it's a convincing result, a decisive result, and what it, what it means is that as a, as a government, we can move on and focus on the stuff that I think really matters to people. And, 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 and let me, let me, let me. I know cabinet ministers who have been telephoned by the chief whip and are telling the chief whip they will support her, but they're not. I know ministers who are being phoned by whips who are saying they will support her, but they're not. There are a small number of MPs and individuals who think that they should be, they should be leader of the party or they should be prime minister. And I'm afraid that's unacceptable. Some people might say you're a rather sore loser. You, 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 you didn't win yesterday, but you're telling us she's still going to go. Well, the Prime Minister hardly won. I mean, if you look at the fact that she didn't get more than half of her own backbenchers, she had to run the payroll vote. The 1922 committee began as a committee of backbenchers with a Prime Minister who was out of touch with backbench feeling. You remember calling for Theresa May to quit, even though she won. Uh, you know, a win wasn't a win then, and it's not a win today either, is it? You're absolutely right, and you're right to remind me of what I said. But when I said that, everybody said to me, friends and non-friends, said that I was wrong on two counts. First of all, it wasn't the generous response to a result, and secondly, it wasn't democratic, that one is enough. I would urge your colleagues to get behind the Prime Minister, give her their full...
I mean, you get the gist. Um, it's funny. It's funny. There's obviously a slightly different approach by these particular MPs to Theresa May and Boris Johnson. Politics is full of hypocrisy. What can you say? Right, let's bring in the brilliant Aaron Bastani from Navarra Media. How you doing, buddy? Very good uh, to be joining you, Owen, on a, is- on a moderately nice Sunday. It's an okay Sunday, isn't it? Um, I can see already in the super chat someone's asking about Paul Mason. We'll have to talk about that later, won't we? I don't think there's any way of avoiding it. <laughs> Pointing out, though, <clears throat> this is Tad Campwell from 1 to 10, how gutted that I wasn't on Paul Mason's list of Putin-sponsored agents. Are you missing out on funding source? I am funded by MI5, so that's that's an easy explanation. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> um, Aaron, so, yeah, I mean, there's this whole question of, we talk about, you know, Boris Johnson surely can't get out of this one. That has been said a lot throughout his entire career. This is a man who lies as easily as he breathes, involved in various scandals and crises that normally finish off any other prime minister. But it is true historically. If you look at votes of no confidence, uh, Margaret Thatcher won basically a similar share as Boris Johnson. She was out. John Major against John Redwood. <clears throat> Again, he won his vote of no confidence, but then went on obviously to be defeated very spectacularly in a general election. Uh, Theresa May, again, she's out in a few months. So do you think, if we're going by precedent, what do you think? How long do you think Boris Johnson's got? What do you think? Yeah, the precedent would be that he won't contest the next election, or, or, or that if he does, um, that Labour would win a majority. I I, I personally don't see Labour winning a, a majority or a big majority. That said, it's, it's two, two and a half years away. Um, and I don't see him standing down before then. I think the, the critical variable... And I'm, I'm sure you'd agree, but you know, I won't ventriloquise you, Owen, is, is whether or not the Tory grandees think there is a plausible alternative. And right now, I think that's unclear to them. Um, and if you look at polling, for instance, among Tory party votes in 2019, still a, a clear majority want Boris Johnson to remain the leader. Same applies also for, for Tory party members. So if you look at Conservative Home, who do they want to replace him? I mean, we've talked about this a little bit on Twitter. It's you know, Ben Wallace, Penny Mordaunt, but the media favourite is Jeremy Hunt. A lot of the actual Tory base doesn't like Jeremy Hunt because he's too far in the centre for them. So it's um, it's a complex one. But like you say, going off precedent, he he should be toast. I want to talk about the dynamics, actually, in terms of the reason lots of Tory MPs are not happy with Boris Johnson at the moment. I mean, oh, I should say, if you're watching live, do you click the, on Facebook, click on YouTube, press like and subscribe. Just quickly, the Tory donors, this is about Tory donors uh, who are losing faith in what's described as Johnson's cult. But it's interesting because even those Tory donors are looking in different directions because some obviously want a classic, you know, they're, they're, and we'll, I'll, I'll come on to this, the fact that actually lots of Tory MPs as well think basically Boris Johnson's economically too left wing. But then you've got John Caldwell, Caldwell, who's the founder of Phones UK, who gave the Tories half a million pounds before the last election. And he said that Johnson should borrow in order to invest, which is very sensible, I would say. So there's not even a kind of coherent narrative there, is there? Because actually, you know, the donors, MPs, there was actually quite a broad coalition ranged against Boris Johnson. They don't actually agree on the direction of the party at all. Yeah, and I think that re- reflects a, a broader crisis for British capitalism and our growth model. I mean, you've seen in the last week, The Economist admonish the Tories for basically failing for, for 12 years. And I think you have this weird moment where in 2015, you had all these executives and you know top people in business say, vote for David Cameron, vote for stability, Ed Miliband, he's a Marxist, he's a bad guy, he can't possibly win. And those same people now are seeing 9% inflation, probably hitting 15, 12% this year, 
they're seeing runaway energy costs, runaway food costs, falling real pay, sclerotic growth, major friction in terms of business interests and trade as a result of Brexit. And so I think that contradiction, Owen, is is a reflection of the a broader contradiction of of how do you manage the British economy right now? You know, and we saw that with Brexit, right? A big faction of of the Conservative Party of the, of the of the one percent in this country wanted Brexit, but another big faction didn't. And in a way that that hasn't really been removed, it was temporarily ameliorated because, of course, they teamed up to get rid of Jeremy Corbyn and got behind Boris Johnson. But it's still a profound contradiction within within the Conservative Party base, I think. Yeah, I mean, last week I wrote a piece which suggested that actually, you know, if you look at Jeremy Hunt, for example, Jeremy Hunt is economically to the right of Boris Johnson. He he enthused about what he said, how George Osborne and David Cameron managed to win public acquiescence, as he put it, for austerity. Um, a lot of Tory MPs are angry with Boris Johnson because he's increasing corporation tax and national insurance contributions. That's not what they signed up to be a Conservative for. They obviously want to roll back the state. Mm. Boris Johnson is obviously very inconsistent. I'm not trying to pretend, you know, Boris Johnson's form of economic interventionism is inconsistent and it's shaped according to Tory priorities and the electoral coalition uh, that the Tories have built. But I think it's very clear that actually a lot of the anger with Boris Johnson is from a large faction of the Conservative Party, who, if we look back, actually, with David Cameron and George Osborne, they had the rolling back the state stuff, but they thought they were too socially liberal. Now they've got the tub dumping social conservatism, but they think that it's too economically interventionist. It's the opposite problem. But that's the issue, isn't it? I think the next leadership, whoever it will be, will try and position themselves in a more George Osborne, David Cameron, austerity, roll back the state kind of approach. Yeah, and the irony is what Boris Johnson ran on in 2019 is incredibly popular. I mean, there's a reason why he got a majority of, of the scale that he did. And I think that's lost on a lot of Labour members and a lot of Liberals um, who, who think, oh, it's just because of Jeremy Corbyn. No, that message of levelling up appropriated the sort of core energies around regional and income inequality that Labour had trumpeted since Jeremy Corbyn's leadership in 2015. And I think that message of we're taking on London, of course, London has its own issues, but we're taking on Westminster. We want to invest uh, in opportunity across the country. Plus that social, not, not into that social conservatism, like you say, being quite right wing on immigration, also just spending money on public services. You know, that kind of, it's been christened Houchinism, you know, after Ben Houchin, uh, a Tory mayor in the Northeast. That is, and the left has to basically deal with that, and I think work accordingly, that is incredibly popular amongst the public at large. Over the last 10 years, we've won many arguments over public ownership and the economy, and we've lost other arguments around immigration. Um, and I, I think actually we've won arguments around civil rights and so on, but that's a little bit more up in the air because the right's always fighting these silly culture wars. But in any case, I think the politics of Jeremy Hunt which would be, like you say, a Cameron 2.0, is actually distinctively unpopular with the public at large. And, and that's where I would agree with some sort of more big C conservative outlets like Unheard or The Spectator. And they would say, well, Jeremy Hunt might go down well with the sort of London pundits, but it's not really a popular politics for the country at large. I think that's probably right. Now, if we're talking about whether Boris Johnson survives or not, we have to talk about the opposition. And this is interesting, Aaron, because... What I would describe is the most tedious people on the internet, bar none, which is the Starmer Ultras. It's like being, I'm not going to say it again, I would say it's like being monstered by a Waitrose kind of queue when it's run out of organic chutney and 
Tunbridge Wells, but where every time I point out, people point out there isn't a proper Waitrose in Tunbridge Wells. So you get the gist, though. Um, they are the most tedious people on the internet, and they're people who often voted for the Liberal Democrats in 2019, all the Conservatives, as I've discovered. Um, and obviously, if you criticise Keir Starmer, then you're a Tory, you're a fifth columnist, why don't you join the Tories, blah, blah, blah. Very fascinating stuff. Um, but I th apparently we're now allowed to criticise Keir Starmer. Let's have a little look. Mm. So in The Observer, poll says Keir Starmer, worst choice for PM than Boris Johnson. Labour head of the Tories by two points, but Labour's leader failing to make a personal breakthrough. Look, I mean, let's just think about this. Let's just think about it a second. Boris Johnson, it, his, his approval rate is a catastrophic. Like, they're really bad. They're really actually mm. bad. And this is the week in which over 40% of, their, of his MPs want him to go. Not only that, amongst the grassroots of the party, <laughs> the polling suggests he's actually unpopular amongst the Tory grassroots. So this is someone who doesn't even really have a base anymore. He doesn't mm. have a, a strong base, and he's the least popular of his cabinet, according to the poll of Tory members. He doesn't have the popularity amongst his MPs or the public. And yet, in a cost-of-living crisis in which people are suffering a terrible squeeze in their living standards, in this poll, Keir Starmer's below Boris Johnson, and Labour's mm. only two points ahead. Yeah, I don't think people realise how bad that is, Owen. I mean, you and I were speaking to Tory councillors and council candidates ahead of the May elections and they and many had just given up particularly in the south right which matters for them because it's you know it's their heartland it's like their equivalent of the red wall and they just given up they said look you know there's not much sometimes there's not much you can do you know this is so much often with local politics you know local campaigning a reliable councillor it comes through many of them just said you know the, the sort of national story and narrative focusing on Boris Johnson rightly and the sort of the shenanigans at number 10 um, during the long shadow of the COVID crisis, that has done us in. We have no chance. And um, you would think under those conditions and a vote of no confidence and 9% inflation and 0% growth and news of the, you know, the worst hit to living standards since 1956, that Keir Starmer would at least be preferred as a prime minister. He isn't. And I think that should set off alarm bells for people who support him and want Labour to form the next government. I want Labour to form the next government. That that should set off alarm bells because the Tories now have two years. They have lots of money that they can spend on tax cuts as a result of inflation. Sometimes inflation can be good. Why? Well, one reason is with, for instance, VAT receipts. You collect more VAT receipts when inflation goes up because, of course, you're collecting more money. Now, Rishi Sunak is looking at tens of billions of pounds purely from increases in VAT tax receipts, which are going to be tax cuts in the next 18 months. And in the meantime, Labour aren't fleshing out a story, have no substantive policies, and the people delivering them, Rachel Reeves and Keir Starmer, aren't charismatic, low energy, aren't affable, likeable, charming. So no ideas, no charisma, no energy, no project. It really is getting ridiculous at this point for people to still be defending Keir Starmer and saying, oh, the city left, they don't know what they're talking about. This is adult politics. It's never looked more ridiculous, in fact. I mean, the issue is the issue is that the dividing line the Labour chose was not over vision or what, you know, a grand overarching narrative for what the country would look like under Labour. It was integrity and honest and honesty and decency. That being a massive con in of itself, because obviously... 
Keir Starmer's leadership campaign was the most deceitful leadership campaign in the history of British democracy. But because those on the receiving end of the dishonesty were on the left and therefore not political, legitimate political actors, according to the media, that's just been brushed under the carpet. But the, the problem is with the public, as it turns out, that doesn't actually work, does it? You can't actually, it turns out, in an era of crisis, make your dividing line personality and character, not least for the reasons you just described. Uh, I was on just with Sky News with a commentator who said, well, and people regard this as personal, but they chose these dividing lines. So, you know, live by the sword. But they were they were like, well, you know, because Kirstam is actually privately really charismatic and warm and all the rest of it. I've hung out, I've met Kirstam a few times. He isn't. I'm sorry. Ed Miliband did have that problem. Ed Miliband off camera, so charming. Yeah. So yeah. lovely, such a lovely guy. Surprisingly Funny. tall. Yeah, very tall, very tall man. I mean, yeah. I'm not, I'm not the tallest guy in the world, but no, very man. self, very self-deprecating. Just he's such a lovely guy, so caring as well. Such a lovely, decent guy. One of those like, caring, nice people I met in British politics. Keir Starmer's what? He's the same <laughs> privately. I mean, the issue is that's the dividing line they chose. They obviously wanted character and personality to be the dividing line, and Keir Starmer's their guy to do that. And the people now, Jess Elgott of The Guardian did an interesting piece about the kind of um, the, the trauma now going on amongst the leader's office because they're like, ah, uh, because people wanting a vision are going to be, I think, left, they're going to be disappointed. They had a windfall tax idea, which actually Ed Miliband, I just mentioned, pushed. They don't have anything left. There's nothing yeah. in the cupboard. Yeah. Well, there was that story a couple of years ago in the Sunday Times, wasn't there, about Keir Starmer taking sort of economics for dummies um, lessons with uh, Charlie Faulkner and Ed Miliband. And, you know, it does it does make you concerned. You're the leader of the opposition. I think he's 60 years old. You, you probably should have worked out what your political and economic sort of compass is at that age. You know, it's a bit late now. You know, I've been thinking actually recently, it would make sense, I think, in future for people to run for parliament should have some experience in local government. I didn't used to think that. I think that now. Because what you're seeing with Keir Starmer is he didn't become a professional politician until 2015. You know, he didn't really understand much about macroeconomics or the substance of foreign policy. I know he did as a student or whatever, but he's not been literate in this stuff for a really long time. You don't have to be. He's also not literate in doing politics, which is basically what you're schooled in as a counsellor. Collaboration, process, how to deal with problems, team management in a political setting. Very different to, to business or to, to the law industry, which we was in previously. You know, um, leadership and inspiring through example and so on. There are lots of people doing this at a local level. Not all councillors are wonderful, by the way. There are some bad ones too. Yeah. But there are many good, talented councillors who embody all this stuff, learn all this stuff over the course of 5, 10, 15 years at an everyday local political level. And that's completely lost on Stum. Stum has no idea what that even looks like because he's never done it. Um, and I think that actually betrays a deep flaw in how elite liberal media understands smart politics. You know, there are there are councillors out there, uh, Owen, where you are, where I am, you're in London, I'm on the South Coast. There are councillors out there who understand the importance of collaboration and that you, you, you can't win without it. You cannot win unless you work with other people. You can't do it. And that can be people who really disagree with you. It can be people that slightly disagree with you. And I think for me, the biggest concern with Starmer, yeah, we can talk about the charisma. He has zero charisma. The biggest problem for me is the fact that his personality type seems so deeply flawed in respect to where he presently is. He's in a big hole. He is in a big hole. And I know Labour are leading the polls. But look, at this point, 
before 2015, Ed Miliband was regularly five, 10 points ahead of the Tories. They still won a majority. I really wouldn't take too much sucker from that. Hey, Labour could still form the next government. I'm not writing it off. But equally, don't draw too much on those sort of headline polls right now. Although, of course, yesterday, one had Labour just 2% ahead. But I think when he's in that hole and he's responding to criticism, from what I've seen of the man on television in the last two years and what I've read about him previously, he doesn't respond well to it. He's not self-reflective. He's not a thinker. He's not a team builder. These are all the things you want in somebody leading a political party and who wants to be the prime minister. So he's failing on the policy. He's failing on the charisma side. And as a personality, I just don't think he's particularly well suited to politics. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's absolutely right. And I think it's important when you said that there is every chance Labour could actually, well, there's a chance that Labour could form the next government. I have to say, in midterm, in normal circumstances, this polling is not great for Labour. Labour will win the upcoming by-election up in Wakefield. I think that's obviously nailed on. The Lib Dems are also likely to win, of course, the other by-election as well. So that will create a narrative for a while as well that emphasises Boris Johnson as a real mess and all the rest of it. But Labour really should be obviously miles ahead, given the circumstances. Just in terms of what comes next, we've got a little clip here from Wes Streeting on Question Time. Do you support the upcoming transport strikes, yes or no? Well, as I say, I prefer they weren't You wish they weren't ahead. happening, but do you support them? No, genuinely, if I were... If, look, put it this way. If I, remember, so if I remember the RMT and my jobs were at risk like this, then I would be, I'd be voting to go on strike and I'd be voting to defend my job's terms and conditions. If I were a government minister right now, it's not my job to be on the picket line or it's not my job to be condemning unions. It's my job to solve the problem, to get people okay. around the table, to Sarah, make sure passengers are aren't inconvenient. Interesting. Now, of course, West Streeting is a Blairite. He's on the right of the Labour Party. I'm not using that. People go, oh, you're using Blairite as an attack word or whatever. I'm not. He's authentic. That's his views. I mean, I'm just, he's a, he's got, he's a principal guy. I mean, he has his Blairite views, which are sincerely held. Um, he's obviously positioning himself quite cleverly there, isn't he? Because he obviously wants to be the next leader of the Labour Party. I think we should just not beat around the bush there. That's quite clear. The Labour right think... A lot of them, that Keir Starmer's a dud because they're not completely, obviously, stupid. Um, and they're preparing the ground for West Streeting. West Streeting's very close friends with Matthew Doyle, who is the communications director of Keir Starmer himself. So there's a lot of people. The reason you often see West Streeting pushed very seriously on TV and the rest is because there are people in Keir Starmer's office who are doing that. Now, Kiss, now, if West Streeting takes over, then Labour will position itself to the right of the Tories on things like the deficit, on spending, investment. Yeah. It will push 
private sector involvement in the NHS and elsewhere. There's no question about that. But what he's doing there, he also said he supported renationalizing the railways. What what do you think? What do you think about all of this? You've got opinions of Wedge Street, Gavin. Yeah, I was surprised. I was surprised. But equally, I think that there's a few ways to read this. So you can be entirely pro-privatization and the market and all the things you just mentioned. You know, he wanted, for instance, rather than increasing um they were talking about student tax, for instance, in 2010, right? When he was, you know, this is somebody who was a former NUS president and they thought that students should be paying more to, to become educated and help society. I mean, Christ. So you you can you can be very right on the economy, but also think that, you know, organized labor should be able to stand up for itself and, and demand higher wages. I don't think his position is actually that sophisticated. I, I think it's, like I said, it's, 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 I think it's politicking and it's maneuvering to become the next leader. Um, I think they're probably they're probably wargaming, streeting, you know, Labour first, Mandelson, progress. They're probably wargaming a small Tory majority or a hung parliament where Starmer doesn't become the PM. I think at that point they then cultivate a sense of crisis, failure. They always do this, you know. I think there would be calls for him to step down as leader very quickly from people like Mandelson and Campbell going on the television if they think that the right doesn't, uh, the left doesn't have a chance, which I th- I'm sure they can manufacture that in the meantime, uh, or even the soft left. They would then create a sort of pressure cooker situation, at which point Starmer would go, and then Streeting would become the leader. And, and and like you say, these are principled people. You know, it's not it's not just. Um, it's not just an attack line to say they're Blairites. You know, West Streeting, when Jeremy Corbyn was the Labour leader, was calling on the guy to resign. He was saying that, you know, McDonald's is good and that they should be at Labour Party conference, even though they weren't treating their workers particularly well. You know, he, he's been very um, candid about his views and very honest and open about them for a very long time. So I, I think it's I think it's manoeuvring with a little hint of we now get the economic populism that, that Corbyn managed to channel and Boris Johnson in 2019, which Liz Kendall doesn't, Liz Kendall doesn't get that in 2015, right? When she gets 4.5%. She doesn't grasp that people care about living standards, higher wages, and that the economy isn't working for them. I think the Labour right, Labour right probably get that a little bit more now. I'd, lo- I'd love to know what you think, though. Mm, I'm not so sure, you know. I think you're, you're. I, I think the problem is that the right of the Labour Party were obviously in exile for a very long time, and they had time and space to come up with an alternative vision. Do you remember Tom Watson set up this? Was it was called mm. the Future Labour Group, ostensibly to come up with new ideas, you know, and, and apply them to Britain in the 2020s and all the rest of it. It didn't come up with anything, and mm. they haven't come up with a clear analysis they've obviously they define themselves against the left that makes their heart beat a little bit faster obviously taking on the trots um and but they don't because if we think back to 1990s with new labor you know there was actually an intellectual foundation for new labor it emerged bizarrely from euro communism you had marxism today which was the in-house journal of the communist party which used this idea of post-fordism that the old way of you know, mass production had given way to a new economy, which was far more atomized and fragmented and class identity was far more fragmented. That was the entire basis, the intellectual foundations laid for new labor. A lot of those people ended up being advisors like Jeff Morgan, people like that around the new labor uh, milieu. But at the time you had a financial bubble, uh, which wasn't obviously diagnosed as such at the time, but you had rising living standards. You had the end of the Cold War. Um, where social democracy across the world accepted the underlying principles of neoliberalism and tried uh, to humanize them. 
and and that works when you had rising living standards and economic growth. The yeah, problem yeah. is they don't have any intellectual project for the here and now. And I know people think, well, this is all very chin strokey and like with the real gritty world of you know policy and the, the people out there. It's not about these kind of intellectual projects. But they, I just don't think they have a diagnosis. They don't agree on a diagnosis of what's wrong with British society, the British economy. There's no clear diagnosis there. So they don't even have a, you know, because some on the soft left, you often hear and, and a kind of chin, an analysis, but without a solution. But they don't have either of those things. Mm -hmm. I don't think fundamentally they think things are particularly going wrong in the British economy. They don't think there's a systemic failing in the British economy. So therefore, why would they have any project for rebuilding or transforming the economy? Because so I'm I'm not I'm not sold they do anything particularly. Let, let me let me re reformulate that then. I don't think they've got any policy solutions, but I think I think rhetorically they look at Trump, they look at Sanders, they look at Corbyn, even Macron. And that, that surely they must rhetorically think, well, we have to at least gesture towards economic populism, which I'm still kind of shocked that Starmer hasn't done. I'm I'm shocked. Like this is, how do you win back the Red Wall? Well, you, you talk about the stuff that they've cared about for the last 30 years, right? Like I, I can understand the critiques of identity politics and all that stuff. I don't agree with it, but I can understand those critiques. And then you lean really heavily into the sort of economic stuff, the blue labor kind of agenda. I get that, but then he, he's, he's, he's doing neither. Anyway. Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, Joe Biden uses more economically populist rhetoric mm. than Keir Starmer. You'll often hear the rich will pay the tax. Yeah, I mean, look, the substance of Joe Biden, all the rest of it is a very different thing. But the, the the rhetoric is far more populist. You know, some Joe Biden tweets you look at and think, well, Bernie Sanders could have tweeted that. Yeah. And you think there's no way, no way in hell Keir Starmer would ever tweet anything along those lines. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think the problem is, you know, with Keir Starmer, he had a view which was... You know, he wanted to be prime minister. Nothing wrong with that. I mean, fine. Really, if you're going to, you know, enter politics or whatever and you want to be ambitious, fine. But if you're not marrying that to anything else, you're going to be in trouble quite quickly. And I think he just thought, look, I look the part. I don't have baggage. Though, obviously, that didn't help him in the end, as it turned out, given our media ecosystem. Um, and, I, you know, I'll be competent. I'll be good at the job. And I think that's what people around him think he thinks about himself. He sees himself as a genuine moral force. That's Keir Starmer's self-perception. He thinks he's a moral force um, in British politics in contrast to Boris Johnson. But there's, you know, he's surrounded himself by really third-rate Blairites, though. I think it's really important to emphasise that because, again, if we look back at the New Labour project, they were substantial people, a lot of these people. Alistair Campbell, Peter Mandelson, like these were substantial people. But these, a lot of them are, for all the talk of the left being full of student politics, uh, you know, student politics, they are student politicians. They're people who got to hate the left through student politics and they're still rerunning those battles through the mm. Labour Party. But I think that's all they got, to be honest. I think that's it. I don't think there's anything else there. So I think it'll be interesting because at the moment, you know, they're even trying to sideline Ed Miliband. Ed Miliband in 2022 becomes the kind of tribune of the soft left within within the Labour shadow cabinet. And they've they've clipped his wings. They've gone for him. They'd get rid of him if they thought they could have done, but they've marginalised him uh, to a large degree. Yeah, and and if 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 they get rid of, obviously, Keir Starmer, they'll want to put someone in place who will just be outright true, you know, new Labour revanchism. But I don't think, I, don't, I just don't think they understand. They don't have a project. And I think that's clear. Just lastly, let's talk about, speaking of interesting projects, Paul Mason, because people do want us to talk about it, so I can't really avoid it. 
Paul Mason, what a fascinating journey. Um, yeah, so basically, I think just you can add to this, but I mean, we he's oh, you know, look, he, he Paul Mason, for those who don't know, I'm sure you will do, but he's a journalist from the left background. He was a Trotskyist earlier on. He became a BBC and then a Channel 4 News journalist. And then became, I, I think, you know, he's often a, an excellent journalist. He's done really, really excellent journalism um, in the past, especially reportage, that kind of stuff. Has a real understanding of the Labour movement. And he ended up being quite early on an anti-Brexit person in 2018. And then went, latched himself to the Keir Starmer um, leadership campaign, which he presented as he'll be a left candidate and all the rest of it, never renounced that. And he's just now gone on such, you know, he's going to, he wants to go, to go down with that ship. But now what's been leaked is this, well, he's not denied it, but he's not confirmed it. I think it's important to emphasize that. But allegedly hacked emails suggesting he's linked together, including Navarra Media. I wasn't on the list, which is very suspicious. Uh, aren't, you a, aren't you a campist? I was, oh, maybe I'm a campist. I'm very camp. Sorry, it's winter up, but yeah. Uh, that was there, wasn't it? I'm a camp campist. Yeah, maybe I'm a campist. So basically, it was like a map of all these left organizations and individuals, plus linking Navarro to things like the black community. Really bizarre. Um, but basically suggesting that these are dangerous pro-Putin people who need to be deplatformed. I mean, is that, just tell me, is that kind of what, what we're talking about here? Yeah. Um, and there was, it's important to say, yes, he has said that some of the emails might be edited or God knows what. It's like a, you know, it's um, it's a very strange response from him. But then Elliot Higgins, who's a founder of Bellingcat, you know, has been responding to people saying Paul doesn't know what he's talking about. So, you know, the inference to me is from other people responding, it's important to say this, is that I think it's widely accepted that that chart anyway is, is Paul's handiwork. Um, and I, I, I was saying this to, to Michael, you know, you could, um, Michael Walker, my colleague, very few other people in British public life, Owen, would have a chart which has Zara Sultana, Conta, which is a small Scottish media outlet, Navarra Media, Socialist Action or Socialist Appeal, I can't remember which one it was. Appeal, um, which one was it? It was Appeal. I, I just yeah, say sorry. Appeal because my dad's a former militant timer, full-timer, so I'm funny. That's, yeah. that's, that's my family tradition, anyway. The networked left, you know, nobody else feel, you know, sort of thinks like this. So I was like, either it's Paul Mason or somebody has managed to like insert, you know, a, a nano CCTV bot into his brain and worked out what, you know, what he's thinking. So, yeah, it is, it is really concerning. And I, I feel like there's a few points I, I probably want to make. I think, firstly, like you say, he's a former Trotskyist, and that, there's many good former Trotskyists, but you do get these personalities in life who need a cause and they need to think that history is going in a direction and that they want to drive history in that direction. Now, Christopher Hitchens was another one. Um, and at one point it was the workers' movement, international socialism, and now it's making organograms of left-wingers because you want to, I don't know, associate them with Putin. Um, so I think there's that. And then another one which I think is really concerning is that he no longer looks at debate um, as contrasting points of view, deliberation, I could be wrong, you could be right, I might learn from you, you might learn from me, we can proceed forward taking different points of view, integrating them into a broader understanding. He doesn't look at things like that anymore. He looks at things as this quote-unquote information war. I'm right, you're wrong, I need to ground you into the dust. You're a, you know, you're a, you're a, you're a, you're an enemy in so much as you are wrong. And if you win this debate, it's not in the public interest. And he, he, 
I think increasingly now, looking at how he's approached Putin, I think that was the same approach with Brexit and the second referendum. He used to say, well, I, I think it's best for Labour. I don't think he actually believed that. I think it was about, I need to win this debate. I need to grind you into the dust. And to hell with the facts, because the facts always suggested that Labour would be screwed if they adopted the position of a second referendum. And, and so I think that's deeply, deeply counter to any sort of understanding of democracy or even just being a good journalist. I think he's lost that capacity. Yeah, and it was really strong. I thought, you know, I know that clip has been widely discussed when me and Michael Walker debated him on this channel. Um, but I found it, it was just depressing. I mean, when he was, you know, get to, got to the point where he calls for the expulsion of people uh, mm. who argue that NATO expansion had a role in the horrific Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and obviously, when it came to those who refused to call out Israeli apartheid, but I think more specific, more appropriately, the Saudi war on Yemen, which is obviously armed and backed by Britain and supported by lots of Labour MPs, then, you know, raising that inconsistency, he accused me of using Putin's talking points. Just, it just so, I mean, actually, I was like, how dare you? I got shrill. Oh, yeah, I remember. Um, it's bleak. It's depressing. Um, Aaron, what a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. With your... You should get, you should get, Paul, you should get Paul and Michael back on. You should have a good old uh, ding dong. Do you think he'll come back on? Yeah, maybe. I'll ask him. A good TV. He, he seems it would be. Yeah, he doesn't. I'm not sure he's that happy. I don't think. He, I don't think he thought the last um, time he came on was useful for him. <laughs> um, alas, but um, Aaron, always, always good to chat to you. Navara, up to Navara. Obviously, everyone follows Navara, so I don't really need to plug Navara. Um, my partner is waiting by the door because we've got to go to the pub. So I'm going to leave now. All right. Um, lots of love buddy I'll speak to you soon see you mate bye, bye. Uh, thanks so much everyone for tuning in you absolute heroes thanks to Aaron obviously from Navara as just Navara as ever brilliant stuff um, so uh, we've got next week two brilliant interviews uh, if I do say so myself one with Yanis Varoufakis and the other with Peter Hitchens very eclectic thank you very much um, I am going away just, just, just to let you know, I feel like you're my boss. So I'm just going to tell you now. I'm going away to Tenerife for work, actually. It's a conference. It's an LGBTQ conference. Um, so I will, um, but we'll still manage to make it work. And we've got these two interviews. I'll do Peter Hitchens. We'll be meeting him in person. Yanis Varoufakis, I'll do it down the line. Um, I won't do the show next Sunday because I'm then going straight on holiday to Croatia and Bosnia as one does. So, um, but we'll, maybe we'll put the Yanis Varoufakis interview the week after, and maybe I'll try and do a show on Saturday from Tenerife. Who knows? Yeah, that's the idea. I think that's the plan. Uh, do support us on uh, patreon.com forward slash ownjoes84. That enables us to do the channel and the podcast. Uh, press like, before you go, press like on YouTube. Go on, like, just do it now. What's your problem? What else are you going to do? Come on, press, just press like. Good. Well done. And then press subscribe. And, um, oh, Super Chats. Yeah, thank you to uh, Woody Woodpecker, David Baratta, Ted, Ted, Tad Campbell. I know who you are. I actually feel like I know Tad. <laughs> like he's both, both David Baratta and Tad and Woody Woodpecker. I feel like I know you. Um, so thank you so much as ever. Um, and yeah, what else are we going to do? Oh, we're going to do a documentary, but in July, because I'm away, can't really, I'm not going to film a documentary in Croatia and Bosnia. So that's not going to work. But we will do it when we get back. And we've got loads of other interviews as well. All right, everyone. Um, I think that's it. 
yeah, I think that's it. Uh, press like, subscribe. Oh, podcast. Download the podcast as well and leave a review there. All right, everyone. Thanks so much. Have a lovely whatever day it is. Take care. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. I hope you found that informative, educational, uh, interesting, and I certainly did. Uh, do support us on Patreon to keep the show on the road, uh, forward slash Jones 84 Leave us some stars, that'd be nice. Spread the word. And I look forward to speaking to you soon. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue checkmark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, You can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.